Welcome to the Jess Larson Show on Innovation and Leadership. Today on the show, I'm excited to have Samir Goyal. Samir, thanks for doing this. Absolutely, Jess. Pleasure to be here. You guys have had some pretty exciting news in the last while. Uh, I think one of the biggest headlines, uh, at least as far as TechCrunch is concerned, is getting $130 million of funding from the Vision Fund 2 and, and kind of crossing over that uh, billion-dollar mark for Susu. Um, wh- when was that? Yeah, Jess, that's a great question. We raised our Series B in January of 2021. So okay. about a, sorry, 22, sorry. So about a year ago now. And uh, it's been one roller coaster since, but we, we the timing worked well on our end. I think it was before a lot of things shifted in the macro uh, economy and the funding markets dried up in the way that they have. I'm actually really excited about your guys' company. Like, I feel like it's like making the country better. And uh, I've got a whole bunch of questions I want to ask and, and things. But for people not familiar, will you, will you uh, tell people what you guys do? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, when we talk about Asusu, we always love to just start with a little bit about the why behind the work that we do. And that leads nicely into the product and the platform itself. Um, but Asusu's inspiration really stems from my personal experiences, along with those of my co-founder, Wamimo. And for myself, I grew up in an immigrant family from New Delhi, India. And our pathway to pursuing the American dream, so to speak, was just harder than it should have been. You know, unfortunately, my father was mugged on his first day in the country. We didn't really have much of a place for shelter. And a lot of my upbringing really unfolded in that same manner. Watching my parents work miracles with no credit and very limited financial resources so that I could have some of the opportunities I've been afforded. And in a similar vein, when my co-founder Womimo and his mother immigrated from Nigeria, they ended up taking out a payday loan at 400% interest uh, on day one, pretty much. And so... Inspired by those shared experiences, we founded Asusu with this core premise that no matter where you come from, the color of your skin or your financial identity, it shouldn't determine where you end up in life. And at the same time, we're capitalists, so we wanted to create a win-win model where we could advance the financial outcomes of renters, but do so in a way that also benefits landlords and lenders and other stakeholders. And so our platform today allows us to partner with large owners and operators of real estate. We're pretty agnostic. So multifamily, single family, military housing, student housing, you name it. And we really do three things. The first is when renters pay rent on time, we report that data into the credit bureaus so that renters can build and establish credit the same way that a homeowner can. Number two is when renters fall behind on rent, we pair them with zero interest financing paid to the landlord. And that way we're able to help landlords meet their cash flow needs, but also help renters navigate financial shock. And then the third piece of the puzzle is we really layer it all together with some data and analytics around sort of the property performance, but also the ESG impact we're having, which has become very top of mind in the commercial real estate industry. So that's that's what we do in a nutshell. I've I've got so many questions on the business side. You know, what was it like getting, you know, getting Goldman Sachs on board and Starwood and, and, you know, (laughs) Freddie Mac and and these big accomplishments you've had? I kind of want to talk about the social side for a minute first. You know, um, listeners of our show know about know that my mother-in-law was a victim of sex trafficking and it was the fourth generation in her family. And, you know, you want to talk about economically disadvantaged, right? Like you look at our families and I love my family, my mother-in-law to death. She's like a hero of mine. She broke a cycle. So my wife didn't grow up that way. But, you know, you look at my parents versus my wife's parents and like, you know, my parents with credit, with financial stability have supported their kids along the years. And, and for my wife's family, we we help support her mom, right? Along with some of my wife's siblings. And you think about like how much wealth in this country for middle income, you know, for non-entrepreneurs, so much wealth has to do with home ownership, passing on homes, passing on the capital gains from a home sale to the next generation. You, get, you know, multi-generational 
real estate, multi-generational real estate ownership is so tied to, to wealth, at least for the average American. And yet there's that hurdle, right? There's that hurdle of like, how do you get started on that path for so many folks? And especially, you know, with our charity Child Rescue, with trafficking survivors, you know, I, I was really interested to, I was reading about when you guys started working with Freddie Mac and, and you know, obviously one of the largest lenders in all multifamily exist. But uh, correct me if I understand the study wrong, but when they retroactively went through it, there was like 17% of people that could have qualified for loans had their, had this system existed already and they'd been getting, you know, they've been getting recognized for on-time rent payments. And there's 17% of these people that were not qualifying for homes because they didn't have this system. I mean, that's a, that's a big number where you start taking hundreds of millions of Americans involved, right? Yeah, you know, Jess, you're spot on. And I appreciate you sharing a little bit about your story and, and your wife's family as well. Um, you know, the reality is in this country, we're just leaving a lot of people behind that we don't have to. Um, so just in terms of the numbers and the data, there's 45 million people in this country that are credit invisible, which means they have no credit score. So the only place they're getting financing is very high interest loans, uh, like three, 400%, right? Payday lending. Uh, you have about another 100 million people that are what you'd call, um, you know, financially unstable or um, not financially healthy. And basically that means they either have a thin credit file or they're living paycheck to paycheck. And one of the things that I think was a little bit of an uphill battle for us to get across from an investor standpoint, but now I think is well understood is we're not really solving a problem for the minority. We're solving a problem for the majority. There are more folks in this country that are struggling with basic financial access than those who are not. And our platform is one of the tools that can really help address that. Um, and you specifically brought up homeownership. And it's interesting because you know, the foundation of wealth in this country uh, is homeownership. And a lot of that was driven by access to cheap debt, right? FHA loans, VA loans, Fannie Freddie loans. And um, that's one of the reasons we're so focused on credit. Um, one, there's definitely a racial element to this where the government denied uh, black and brown borrowers access to some of those loans. But even more fundamentally, uh, credit is the kind of embodiment of the American dream, right? It's uh, the opportunity for people to kind of bet on themselves, invest in their own futures and have some of those opportunities that we associate with this nation. And so um, I think you you hit the nail on the head, right? Uh, home ownership, wealth, all of that is very closely tied together. And right now we're just not giving everyone a, a fighting chance at achieving it. Well, and I think there's also this idea of um, just our own conceptions of like what regular life is like. You know, my wife talks a lot about, you know, growing up, she like as a young girl, like, she said the only people she knew who had been to college were her school teachers. And like, they didn't count. You know what I mean? Like none of her friends' parents had been to college. Like it wasn't even the concept. Like, like you know, we ask kids in most schools, like, oh, where do you think you want to go to school? Like it wasn't even a question happening in her neighborhoods, right? And um, like, do you want to buy a home? So, so when we, we were like, uh, I don't know, 24 maybe when we bought our first house. And it was, inexpensive in little farm town I grew up in, you know, by today's standards, quite inexpensive. Okay. But it was, uh, she called and told her grandma, uh, Hey grandma, I, I bought my first house and her grandma started laughing. Ha ha ha. She's like, no, I did. She's like, very funny. Anyway, she couldn't convince her grandma that she had bought a house. It was just like outside of her grandma's paradigm, especially with her, you know, only being in her twenties, like, like literally didn't compute, you know? And What's funny is like, even though that, like, I mean, 
I can't remember what that house was. It was not, it was not expensive by today's housing prices, okay? But it's that toehold start that that we could then progress for our own, you know, our little families, personal uh, financial getting ahead, right? But if you can't get that first step, man, it's, I mean, I know I'm preaching to the choir here, but like, I, I especially think about trafficking survivors and so many of them came from the neighborhoods my wife grew up in, right? And where nobody's getting that first step. And so often these predators who are hurting our kids in this country, you know, it's the foster care system, it's youth homelessness, it, and it's, it's so economically driven of why they're more vulnerable, why they're likely to be in the kind of area where police and family and neighborhood watch isn't catching this stuff, right? And uh, to me, like you look at, I mean, my, I guess my question is, why did it take until you guys for somebody to figure this out? This should have been happening for decades, right? Uh, Jess, you know, I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, I always say the credit system acts as though you're guilty until proven innocent, right? So we don't know anything about you, Jess. We're going to assume that you're a bad credit risk and we're going to stack the system against you. And you bring up some really good points. You know, I think um, it was Malcolm Gladwell who wrote a book and one of the core thesis uh, of the book was how much of sort of um, habits or things that we associate as bad, right? Crime, drug use, et cetera, are based on people or place. And when he did the research, you could correlate 99% of it to place. It was really very much driven by a product of the environment where you are. We can look at America and very easily point to, here are the neighborhoods where people are going to have be more prone to violence. Here are the neighborhoods where there's going to be more drug use. Here are the neighborhoods where there's going to be more sex trafficking, right? And, and we all know that and we all understand that and we just let that system happen, right? And, and so it really does go to show that, yes, there is a human agency element, but a lot of the issues and things that people in this country face are, are by design. And, and there's things that we can do about that. I think credit is one part of the puzzle as, as we firmly believe in. And, you know, interestingly enough, um, a few things happened that allowed us to kind of be the people to bring this to market at scale. One was, I think generally people kind of understood um, the role that credit played in day-to-day in -day life a little bit more acutely. And so there was a little bit of engagement on the regulatory side, there was engagement on the credit bureau side, there was engagement on the landlord side. And I think people kind of understood that it was important. And so I'd say maybe almost a decade ago now, the credit bureau started incorporating alternative data and the concept of what counted as credit changed. For me, I think of credit and I think it's a, it's a proxy for trust, right? If the three digit number that tells you, is this person trustworthy or not? And we had such a narrow definition of what could qualify someone as trustworthy or not that didn't really make sense. So there was that one sort of mindset shift. But the other thing was um, really just the uh, building the plumbing, as we like to say. Um, so to take the example of rental data, it's super disparate. It's very unorganized. Every landlord has a different operating system. And we had to build a platform that would basically integrate with landlord property management software, ingest this data, transform it, and report it into the credit bureaus in a way that was seamless, scalable, um, high integrity, uh, and a, in a very regulated industry. And so building that sort of plumbing sounds very unsexy, but it took us a couple of years to do that. And that's what allowed us to really accelerate and launch. And I think that's where a lot of other folks that thought about this really kind of lost their way or gave up or moved to a different idea. Well, I will say this. I, I was thinking about how you guys are probably doing more to counter child trafficking in the country than my foundation because you were smart enough not to do a 501c3, which I think is a terrible model because you get penalized for hiring good people. You know, if you, if you hire people who are too good with those big salaries, you get criticized 
And I was like, yep, it's too much technology. It's too expensive, right? All that. And so I, I was literally sitting here thinking like, man, by changing the economics, you change the crime, the specifically one we're at. And so I was literally here sitting at my desk thinking like, I have said this a bunch of times of like how like for purpose organizations, that's what I call people like you, are actually better than nonprofits at, at like outputs. And so like I was sitting at my desk here thinking, you know what? So we, we've got like a, right now we're working on a seed program for a law enforcement training to teach cops how to recruit like double agents in criminal networks. Like think like sophisticated groups that are selling kids, right? Like how do you, instead of like a one and done, like street level dealer kind of bust, like how do you recruit somebody high up who can inform on the gang for years kind of thing, right? And I thought, I'm sitting, because of you today, I was thinking like, why don't we turn that into a business? I can sit here and complain that nonprofit fundraising sucks, or we could just turn it into a training company. So anyways, I'll have to report back if we end up doing that. Yeah, I'll stay tuned, Jess. I, I, you know, I, I do believe that every type of organization has a role to play, but I'm obviously partial to, uh, we, we call it a justice capitalism. Basically, you know, we believe in the power of the market to scale and grow companies, but at the same time, you can be intentional and have purpose, like you said, and, and that's, that's kind of a win-win across the board. I like that. Justice capitalism. That's what we want to do. Okay. So let's switch gears and, and um, let, let's talk about that capitalist side of things. So um, I'd love to run through uh, just a quick handful of questions that I've asked other billion-dollar founders, if that's okay, and then we go wherever you want. Um, let's do it. Okay. So first, you think about being a CEO and of, of a company that you know has passed the billion dollar mark and you you've said publicly before looking to looking to pass the 10 billion dollar mark in the future um when you think about fundraising i mean you guys have you've had such great funders so far and and even celebrity funders like uh serena williams um uh when you think about fundraising at this level where you're going for these types of numbers um what's some advice you have to other founders who you know, it's not just wishful thinking, like they're genuinely trying to break that billion dollar mark. So they need to do fundraising at the kind of scale you have. Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. And I think um, something that I can do to paint some context is, you know, our fundraising journey wasn't always so kind of uh, blessed or, or fortunate in that sense. Our most recent round in January of last year was 130 million at a billion dollar valuation. But the first time we tried to raise capital, it took us 18 months to raise, you know, 1.5 million. And so there is an evolution that naturally comes with fundraising. And so first and foremost, I would definitely encourage people not to get discouraged. Um, I think for us, you know, we really struggled at first to prove out the size of the market that we were impacting, right? And I think that's what I was trying to get at earlier. It really took us some time to refine that narrative to the point where VCs kind of understood like, hey, this is a massive target addressable market. This isn't a feel-good project. This is actually a impactful scalable business. And I think the other thing was a lot of VCs didn't necessarily have proximity to the issues and problems we were solving. And so um, one, you know, I'm very grateful to have some of the early investors that took a bet on us, many of whom were a little bit more impact oriented or minority driven. But um, I think what that allowed us to do was get the data, right? And have the data to then go to larger institutional, more traditional venture capital firms and say, look, here's our track record, here are the outcomes we're driving, and you can invest in a company like Asusu and feel good at the same time, but look at the numbers, and the numbers are are there. Um, when you think about fundraising at scale, the biggest mi mindset shift that I had was uh, a couple of things. One was um, thinking about it opportunistically, right? So you never want to be raising capital when you are desperate to raise money, 
um, so much of venture capital is a little bit of this like sort of like ego dance, right? And if like, I don't know what it is about it, but if you are desperate for money, then I think people could tell in some way, shape or form. And probably your business fundamentals reflect that as well. We had a lot of success raising our last round because we actually didn't need to raise money. We had just a few months ago raised a round and we saw this moment where we had just announced our partnership with Freddie Mac and we saw how much that would turbocharge our business. And so it was more of a proactive, aggressive fundraiser. It's like, look, we have an opportunity to really accelerate our growth, have a tremendous impact and scale the business. And we want the capital to play offense. And if you don't give us money, that's fine because we have enough other things to worry about, right? And I don't actually have time to go on this like six month fundraising process. And so we put out a fundraising process for about six to eight weeks and said, this is the time box that we have. We got to raise the money and we're doing it for this sort of more offensive purpose. And the more that you can get to a place where you're raising proactively and from a place of opportunity rather than a place of needing the money, I think the more successfully it goes. Um, number two, I don't think the venture capital is always the right place to get money, but if you are, you really get rewarded for thinking big rather than thinking like incredibly uh, sort of accurately, so to speak. And so um, a lot of VCs really want to see what the potential is for a business to return their fund or be a multi-billion dollar business. And so even if you're more of a pragmatist or a realist, you want to make sure that at least you can paint the potential, right? And then it's like, look, you know, this business is going to grow X, Y, Z percent year over year, but there's a huge opportunity. And if things go our way, this really could be the business that returns the fund. And I think, you know, at the beginning, we were definitely much more sort of conservative with how we played the business. And I think there's a great exercise of thinking, well, what would it take for this to be a billion dollar business? What would it take for it to be a $10 billion business? And then you work backwards from there and you realize, oh, it's not that far-fetched, but it's almost like a shift in mindset that also I think venture capitalists uh, enjoy. And then the third thing I'd say before I kind of end this, uh, you know, soliloquy is, uh, you know, fundraising is really an emotional energy game, right? You're perpetually just being told no by a lot of people. And so you need to think about ways to kind of conserve your resiliency and emotional energy. Um, one of the things that we always tried to do, my co-founder and co-CEO, Wamimo and I, is we would uh, essentially be overprepared and reduce the back and forth as much as possible. And what I mean by that is we would have pre-written email templates, we would have target lists, we would have data rooms set up, and the conversation could very quickly be like, okay, cool, you're interested after an intro call, here's our data room, check it out, let us know if you're interested. And we tried to eliminate as much sort of creation of bespoke materials or kind of reinventing the wheel and rather just had like sort of like as much of it kind of pre-done as, as possible so that way it wasn't taking up too much of our day-to-day -day time which is also great if you're a founder that's operating and fundraising, which I think most are, and it gets very hard because fundraising is a full-time kind of thing. And so the more you can kind of build in those shortcuts, it makes it scalable, but also just conserves your energy. I think that's solid advice. Um, what did that look like for you of like, you know, guarding your resilience? You know, I'll say I'm very fortunate to have an incredible um, co-founder in Wabimo. And I think one of the things that was great about it is that no matter how kind of crappy your day is, there's someone else that's going through that also. And so having that support network really makes a difference. And I'm fortunate to have someone like Wamimo, but I think for any founder, right, you want to have that support network where somebody just gets where you're at. You know, it's one of the reasons why I think like founder therapy and the, when I say therapy, I mean like literally when you just go and talk to like five other founders and vent about things is so valuable, right? Because you just want to like be able to like work through those experiences, see some of the humor in it and kind of understand it's there. Two, um, 
I always try to remember like why we're doing what we do, right? And I think, you know, Jess, even in this short conversation, it's clear you're a very mission-driven person. For us, it was always like, why are we doing what we are doing? And do we believe it needs to exist in the world? And that never changed. And that's an incredible reservoir of energy because it's like, look, our renters are telling us this is needed. Our customers are paying us and telling this is needed. We're seeing the impact. And that also helps you kind of move through fundraising, which can be, you know, a little bit of a, you know, long shot at times. Um, and then I think like at some point, founders need to also be selective at who they want on their cap table as well. Right. So I think at the beginning, we were very quick to adapt to feedback we heard from different VCs. And then at some point, you just kind of learn like, these are the things that we believe in. This is who we are. And these are the types of the people who kind of back that and believe in that are the people we want on this journey with us and people who don't, that's okay. Right. There's other founders that think differently and approach things differently. And you kind of learn like what is malleable and what's not. And you develop your core set of beliefs. This is how we want to kind of run this business. This is what we stand for. And then there's stuff where it's like, okay, yes, I don't actually know how to build a great direct-to-consumer business. If a VC has kind of subject matter expertise, they can lean in and guide us. We're very coachable and want to learn. But that doesn't mean like everything that's being said, we're going to like jump through a hoop to adapt to. Maybe one follow-up on that is, you know, where you guys have raised from, uh, from VCs, from foundations, and then, you know, something that's becoming a much bigger part of the, you know, the startup fundraising world is, is celebrity investors. Can you talk about the approach with Serena and and maybe as you think about that as a category advice you'd have for founders? Yeah. So, you know, I'd, I think every um, celebrity fund and celebrity is probably a little different because there's probably an institutional element to it, but a lot of it's driven by their own kind of interests and, and passions. And I would say, you know, that's Serena Ventures as well. They have an institutional funding base. They've, I think they have 16 unicorns now. They have a great track record. And it's also tied to things that Serena is personally passionate about and invested in. And so, um, you know, it's been great for us because I think Serena really believes in what we're doing based on her own personal story, right? Growing up in Compton and seeing the kind of social change that she's had in her own life, right? And so I think I feel very grateful to have someone like that in our corner who not only is like thinking of startups as like a cool, interesting thing to do, but actually really understands what we're trying to do and believes in it and wants to kind of go and advocate for it. Um, I would say pitching um, funds or celebrities is no, not really as different as you might expect from VCs. I think you want to be prepared. You want to treat them like any other institutional investor. Um, and I think the thing I'd say that is interesting is usually there's a combination of a human interest element and a sort of like fundamentals model, right? And you want to be thoughtful about where you're going. I think most VCs, it's really about kind of the process that they have in place for due diligence. I'd say with celebrity investors, they typically have that expertise at house, but then there's an element of these are the things that I really want to leave my legacy around. And so you want to focus on, you know, celebrities and influencers and athletes and such that really are passionate about what you're doing. Um, and not just like, hey, you're a big name, let's go pitch this thing. And we like, they could care less about it because I think, you know, it's, and I'd say it's also a growing category. I see more and more um, athletes, celebrities, et cetera, moving into venture as an interesting way to kind of compound their wealth, but also still stand for something, right? And so I think we'll only see it grow. Yeah, that's great. Um, okay, n next one on my hit list here. Uh, founders are constantly being told, it's all about the team. You have to have a great team. Um, and then sometimes the advice gets a little light on like how to do that. So the two sides of this, I'll start with this. When you think about selection, 
of, of who you want to recruit, who you want to, who you want to try to court. Um, what's on your mind as you're thinking about team building for Susu? Yeah, this is a, it's a, it's a good question. You know, it's, it's a lot harder than it sounds. So I appreciate you asking. I think, you know, there's two pieces to it. There is kind of that character component and there's the expertise component. And I would say that at the beginning, you're really over-indexing on the character piece. Um, and what I mean by that is like, one, how much passion and dedication does this person have to what you're actually building? Because the reality is it's a hot mess. And so they need to be willing to kind of deal with some bad days and have the days where they're helping you take out the trash at the same time as doing the cool, you know, innovative things that people associate startups with. Um, and so you really want people who believe in what you're doing. They have that sort of like grit and resiliency um, because you know, even for early stage employees, you're, if you're working at a startup, it kind of becomes your life in some way, shape or form. And that can create a lot of burnout if you don't have that conviction, what's going on and that sort of startup grit. Um, I'd say the third thing is like an ability to be comfortable with ambiguity. So people who really value structure and certainty, I think we've seen struggle in a startup environment just because the reality is something could change every week and you got to be okay with that, right? It's not one of those places where you get super comfortable. Um, and everything's the same and you kind of understand exactly what your job is and you repeat it and you scale it. It's still a little bit of a melding pot. Things are changing. You're adapting to the market. You're adapting to current events. You're, you know, things are always changing. And, and so I think that ability to be comfortable with ambiguity is a big, big, um, factor that we've seen. And then the, the other piece is really around communication, right? Someone who's able to work with people that have different perspectives, be collaborative, not be afraid of feedback, not be afraid to be direct, those sort of things. I think it's. Um, that really helps make a great early stage um, startup team member. And then I think over time, you need to start indexing more and more on specific expertise where, you know, there's limit to how much hustle and grit can solve problems. And you start needing to index on, has this person been there, done that? And do they have a playbook that they can execute? And I'd say that probably happens once you start moving towards like 20, 30, 40 employees where it's like, all right, you have your kind of early cohort of people who are just like total missionaries. And then you start to complement that with like true subject matter experts who can just like be better at it than you are and, and scale. And so that pendulum shifts a little bit um, in that sense. Yeah, I appreciate that advice. Um, does it change, does your advice change at all if it's going to be a remote position? Uh... So it's interesting because I think every founder, every CEO is trying to figure this out right now. And um, I think you very clearly see the pros of both in-person and remote in today's world, right? Like being remote gives you the opportunity to compete for a wider set of talent. It lets people have more wholly integrated lives, which is actually great in a startup environment where burnout is super common, right? So being able to design life to be successful for them is actually a big win. Um, and, you know, you save so much time and things like commute and whatnot that there's before. But that being said, there's like some magic to in person, right? And and the connections that are built and the relationships that are built and the ability to like get something done in 10 minutes that might take 10 Zoom meetings otherwise is like unparalleled. And so what I see a lot of is, um, you know, companies um, shifting to this model where it's remote flexible, but there are shared working locations where people can congregate at their discretion. And then there's more frequent in-person events. So rather than having like an annual offsite, maybe it's a quarterly offsite and gathering. And I, I'm pretty supportive of that kind of middle ground where you create moments for people to interact, build camaraderie and have those sort of problem solving sessions. And at the same time, it's not like 
everyone needs to be living in New York City, commuting into Wall Street every single day, which I think would uh, lead to a lot of attrition. Uh, let's go the other direction. Um, so let's say you found somebody, you found somebody that you hope will join the team. When it comes to getting them to choose you or choose a Susu, what, what kind of advice do you have for founders who now have to win over top talent? So I'm fortunate. I love to, to sell and so does my co-founder, Will Nemo. So um, look, I think the, the biggest thing is, um, you know, people choose to join startups and people choose to join specifically impact or mission-oriented startups to have a sense of purpose. Right. Typically, people want to contribute to something that they think is meaningful. They want to grow a lot in their career and and they want to they want to develop. Right. And so I think that's what you got to remember. Like people aren't coming to you for the biggest paycheck. And if they expect that, then they should go somewhere else. Right. So I think we stop trying to compete with Google and Facebook on like comp because one, it's like a it's a losing battle to compete with Fang. But two, like I think people should understand the trade offs um, or the sort of. Um, you know, Reed Hoffman has this book called The Alliance. And it's like, what's the kind of tour of duty that's being created, right? And the startup tour of duty is one in which a team member learns a ton. They're pushed out of their comfort zone. They have a greater impact. They develop skills. They build really strong relationships. The tour of duty is not, this is where I have great work-life balance and get paid a ton of money, right? And so it's just important that people kind of understand what they're signing up for. Um, but beyond that, the thing that helps the most is, is passion. Like, I think there's nothing like getting on the phone with a couple of founders who really believe in what they're talking about. And that is the number one seller every time is just being able to talk about, here's why we built this business. Here's where we're headed. Here's why we care about it. And here's how we're going to change the world. And people get really excited about that, right? Versus like, here are the comp and benefits, which are like, don't get me wrong, we're an attractive place from a comp and ben standpoint, but people are joining to have that sense of purpose. And that's always the best seller. Um, I think too, over time, as we mature, people are looking for more clarity around like what their role is, the impact they're going to have, and they want that sort of alignment between what they thought they were getting into and what they actually get into. Right? I think very early stage startup employees are comfortable with their role changing every week. I think over time, we're seeing that as we mature, people are a little bit less comfortable with that and really want to kind of understand what they're getting up to. So having clarity and an understanding of what the role is, why you're hiring that person, and why they're a good fit, and being able to articulate it to them. I think goes a long way, right? It's like, hey, Jess, you are the person for this role for ABC reasons. Here's the impact you're going to have. And like making that roadmap very clear, I think also goes a long way. You know, uh, this is such a fun hobby for me doing the show um, because I get to find like, I get to see what's similar across these high achievers and then also get the nuances of what's different. And like, so, you know, of these like 20 something billion dollar founders that I've had on the show, so many have answered that question that you just answered and used words like sell the passion, sell the future impact. <laughs> and like, there's so much alignment amongst you that it, it like helps me have extra faith, you know? But then I also like the, the spin on it and talking about like the clearly articulating what their role is. I don't know that others have, have added that flavor to it. And uh, so it's like, I like the confirmation of like, here's a pattern that seems to repeat itself across industries. But then I also like, you know, here's the color commentary with it of like, you know, some more specifics, some more granularity of for implementation. So I appreciate the answer. Yeah, absolutely. And good to know that I'm not off my rocker. So. <laughs> um, okay. Uh, another one is um, thinking about uh, product market fit. 
you know, you think about the kind of scale that you guys are reaching. But by the way, let's talk about this. How, how many, you know, how many people's credit scores do you think you guys have helped improve so far? Approximately. Yeah, so that changes every day. Um, so I don't have an exact figure, but I'd say from a partner reach standpoint, we cover about 3 million rental units across all 50 states. It's about 6 million renters, probably touching well over a million people directly in terms of credit impact. And so it's been exciting to see the growth and um, we're just getting started. But to get very granular for a second, I think there's been a couple of things that have been really cool. One is you know, we actually have gotten to hear the stories of some of the families we've been able to keep in their homes with our rent relief efforts as a chance, right? And one story that always comes to mind is a renter by the name of Scott Falk, who is in New York. And, um, you know, he's been a carpenter for most of his career. And very early in the pandemic, he was let go, uh, had nowhere to go, went to Catholic charities, and really was honestly worried, like many Americans. And um, reached out to us and we were able to give him um, three months of rental support. And he then went and got a six-figure job and was actually getting paid more than me and my co-founder and was able to pay it back and kind of get back on his feet. But it just goes to show the very real and human element of this. And, you know, sometimes people just need that that shot. Um, you know, you also earlier talked about economic mobility and specifically, I think, your your wife uh, speaking with her uh, grandmother. And um, we've definitely seen some people move from public housing or Section 8 housing into home ownership. And that is that sort of generational poverty is is hard to break, right? Because there's sometimes there just isn't that much hope or that much opportunity. And so being able to see some of that direct impact is also important. Well, l let's talk about the other side of it. Let's talk about these multifamily owners, the Goldman Sachs, the Starwoods, these, you know, huge real estate owners with thousands and thousands of units. Um, you guys have obviously crafted something that is so ideal for them that they're signing up to to the kind of levels that we're talking about here you know you're attracting so much um when you think about product market fit how do you define it so there's probably a few very like quantifiable ways to talk about product market fit but where i think about it is when your delivery can't keep up with your sales and so we've been stuck in that problem but it's a great problem for some time but there's just a point in time where it's like okay, we're signing customers, we're signing contracts, and we do not have the capabilities to execute on the volume that we're seeing health, right? And that is a great problem to have. But, and I think that's also a good hallmark of product market fit, where, you know, you're, you're kind of outpacing your own expectations. So that's like a very qualitative way uh, to describe it. But I think that's when we knew we had really caught fire or something, where it was like, all right, we can't even keep up with the volume of leads and clients and contracts. Okay, so let's say I'm a founder today listening to the show. And I'm, I'm going, okay, I'm going to treat that as my feedback loop. Okay, that's the standard. That's the standard. You know, if, if, our, uh, if we're not reaching our expectations, if our, if our uh, delivery is, you know, our delivery capacity is exceeding our sales, right? Then that, that's, that's my signal. Oh, we haven't, we're not there yet. We, we still need to improve. When you think about mental frameworks or tools or, Anything that can be a lever to help the rest of us founders think of ways that we can improve our product to the point where, uh, where we are achieving product market fit, as you defined it there. What are some tips? What are some ways to get a new perspective on what we do? Or what, what advice would you have? Yeah, so I would say that, you know, it's funny. Um, both my, both my co-founder and I are kind of more East Coast people in some ways. So uh, we met when we were both in New York. And um, 
you know, I, I've kind of jokingly heard the difference between like a New York founder versus a West Coast founder. And I think like New York founders are just way more focused on sales and West Coast founders are way more focused on like product and technology and like what's being built. And I'd say my biggest guidance in general is like, don't build things and expect people to come, but really understand if there's a willingness to pay um, for a product and get people to pay for it. It's okay if the product is super manual and you have kind of like a veneer on the front end and it looks all shiny. And in the back end, you're dialing 500 phone calls and making things happen behind the scenes and duct taping it all together. But you really want to validate that there's a, there, there, there's a willingness to buy and that customers actually value what you're delivering, right? And I see a lot of founders will build a lot of really cool products and function and then find out nobody's actually buying it or using it. Or people are like, I totally buy that. And then when push comes to shove, they don't. Um, there's a good book that my wife actually often recommends called The Mom Test. And it kind of... He's coming on the show. Oh, amazing. I, yeah. Yeah. Rob Fitzpatrick. I'm, I'm super excited to have him on the show. He's coming in a, a few weeks. Oh, great. So yeah, I... I <laughs> I've actually got enough of an anecdote of the book from other people that I've never even read it myself, but I've heard it many times. And, uh, you know, uh, one of the things they talk about is, um, you know, if you were to go ask someone like, hey, Jess, would you, um, you know, pay for this product on your phone? And they'd be like, yeah, totally. And it's like, don't, that's a horrible question. Like, what were the last five things you paid for? And it's like, oh, you literally have never paid for anything, right? And, uh, and, and so it's just that sort of more, I always, want to see real revenue and real um, customers, even if we have to build it after the contract. That to me is always better than building something and then going to market and then realizing that there's no willingness to buy. And so I always, I'm, I'm a big proponent of, uh, of that sort of an approach to scaling, at least in the early days, right? And then you want to standardize, you want to productize, you want to find things that solve problems for many customers so that you can scale it, build out your margins, all that sort of stuff. But in the early days, I think it's really important that you really make sure that there is a willingness to buy and there are customers that are buying it. Um, one of our earliest partners was uh, Related Companies. Um, and it was a great relationship for us and still is today because they gave us a ton of tough love, right? It was like, hey, this is cool. We want to believe in this. We want this for a residence, but I'm never going to buy it for you unless you do A, B, C, D. One of those things was you need to be SOC 2 Tech 2 uh, certified, right? So then we went through this rigmarole of becoming SOC 2 Tech 2 certified, but you know, you mentioned a couple of our other partners, Goldman, Starwood. These are all Fortune 500 companies that need security standards. Getting that SOC 2 certificate made it so that we could very easily become a vendor with them. Other feedback we got was, um, we don't want just like one product or service. We need a holistic solution for renter financial health and asset stability. And so we were like, all right, we can't just do one thing. We need to kind of understand what a bundle package of three or four things that solves this problem holistically are. We did that. That's one of the reasons we actually sell better than other people in the market, right? And so just actually getting that direct feedback and like listening to what your customers say. Like you as the founder and the salespeople don't have the answers. Like listen to your customers. Don't think you know more than them. You don't, right? And I would definitely really tell people to avoid that hubris. Like one thing that I will say for myself and Omimo is when our customers were like, this sucks, do something else. We were just like, okay, done. Like onward, right? And I think not always the easiest, but that really helped us just listening to them. So speaking of, you know, previous guests with similar answers. So Steve Blank from Stanford built eight startups, you know, he sold his eighth one for like 8 billion, kind of father of the lean startup movement. The mom test is taking his book, um, uh, the, the startup owner's manual and saying like, okay, this is what to do. The mom test is like putting some meat on the bones of like, just more specifics of how to do it. And, and like, um, how, how to like translate into actions, right? 
But when he came, when Steve Blank came on the show, he was saying like, you need to go out and meet with these customers who said they were going to buy. Like, you need to go interview them until they're pushing money into your hands. Like your product isn't good enough if they're not pushing money in your hands, like take my money now. And it sounds like you're saying the same thing. I would much rather have like $5 million of revenue locked in and then go tell our engineering team to figure out how to build it than the other way around. And my <laughs> engineering team hates it, obviously. But I think that's such a more uh, appropriate approach, especially in a capital constrained early stage startup than, hey, we think we understand all the problems that you have and we've built this thing that you should want to buy from us is, you know, that, <laughs> yeah. that doesn't work well. Okay, so... Um... My, my final on my like bulleted questions here, and then I want to go, I've, I want to see where you want to take things. But um, thinking about this idea of being a founder CEO and the business keeps growing and requiring new skill sets and different levels of leadership, different levels of technical expertise, all sorts of things, whatever it is. When you think about scaling yourself, um, I'm interested what your mental framework is to like continue to qualify for your job, to continue to be the right guy now and can you continue to be the right guy at 10 billion? Yeah, you know, just I'd be lying if I said I had all the answers on that one. I think it's a, it's a work in progress. Um, I will say over the past year, I think what I've had to focus on is moving from being a founder to a CEO. And that's actually hard because I think founders often become founders because they like being founders and don't enjoy being CEOs probably as much as they enjoy being founders, right? And um, I would much rather be trying to sell our first ever customer than thinking about risk management, right? I would choose option one 110 times um, out of 100, right? And so I think, you know, it, it does take a little bit of a shift and you got to have an honest conversation about like what you want, right? And if what you want is to scale and grow the company and continue to be at a position where you can be driving some of that change, you need to be willing to kind of understand like the way that we've done things to get here and the things that might have given me joy and satisfaction are things that I'm going to continue to do. And then it becomes very much um, a thought process around like, what are the things that we can uniquely do? And I say, we are, we're a co-CEO model. What are the things that we can uniquely do that nobody else can do? And if there are things that other people can do, hire great people, don't um, be too conservative in hiring quality people. Right. And then get people who are better at things than you are, get out of their way and empower them to do great stuff. Right. Um, and then for the things that you want to do, I think, you know, I was recently reading about, but I've kind of employed the, they call it the Eisenhower matrix, right? It's like what's urgent and important, what's important, but not urgent. Right. And that's a good model. Um, there's many others that sort of fall into that same category, but some way of organizing your time and your priorities on a consistent manner is, is everything. Well, no, I want to talk about the Eisenhower model because I really need your advice on those things that are so important, but not urgent, how you guard those from the urgent unimportant, which seem to always cannibalize the time for them. Yeah. So urgent, unimportant, I'd say delegate or ignore. Um, but I think it's what I've realized is um, kind of in that category of like, what are you also like uniquely able to do? Right. I think for myself and Mimo, one of our biggest superpowers is being customer facing. Right. And so I think to add another layer to it, it's like what's urgent and important that you can uniquely do really well. And so I'll always prioritize like a client thing because that's where I can, I know I can have a significant impact. If it's something like, I don't know, maybe an HR issue, right? It's like, all right, I need subject matter expertise here to like 
drive this to resolution and it might be important and then maybe I need to input on it, but I'm not the person to maybe execute it, right? And so I think layering urgency, importance, and then like ability to really drive or have uh, outsized impact with taking action yourself versus having someone else do it. I think goes a long way. There's another framework. Uh, I used to work at uh, LinkedIn and one of the frameworks that we would use there that I really enjoyed was called Rapid. Um, and it basically outlines like, it creates accountability in every single decision matrix, right? So um, it's basically like, who is it? Like the D stands for decision, you know, um, in, I stands for like input, right? So A is agree. So it's like, who are the people that are basically executing it, um, inputting into it, um, accountable for the results, et cetera. And I enjoy that because I think part of what makes these matrices so important, like the Eisenhower matrix is sometimes things just get diffused in terms of who's accountable for it. And so one of the things we've really spent time on is what are things that are important and who's owning it and who's accountable for it? Because otherwise there can just be a lot of people and when there's shared responsibility, things seem to not get done as well. And so I would kind of layer in that as well a little bit as another framework. Okay, so my follow-up question is, when you think about the things that only you can do or that you're best suited to do, and you've got the urgent important and the unurgent important, and you know, if you don't, in my experience, and feel free to contradict me, if I don't time block, if I don't guard extremely hard the important unurgent, it just gets railroaded by the important urgent. Do you, do you have any tips for, for guarding that time, for making sure that important unurgent uh, doesn't just get railroaded by the important urgent? I'd say it's, a, it's an area for opportunity for me. Um, and, uh, <laughs> what I'm trying to do is drastically reduce the number of meetings I have and do fewer things better. Uh, and I think that's like one of my biggest goals for this year is um, Asusu over the past year has scaled from maybe 20 people to 200. And there's many things that I think I can kind of shed doing personally to really carve out time for investing in our kind of senior leadership members, right? Because if those people are set up for success, they're gonna have an outsized impact in the organization and give me leverage, right? So that's one. Two is really focusing on our customers and clients so that we understand what's important to them, where are we going as a business and also driving revenue. And then third is just like the bigger picture strategy, right? Like how do we wanna evolve as a business? We right now are very much a great B2B business partnering with landlords and reaching a lot of renters. Next phase of our business is really engaging with our renters and being a partner for them on their financial wellness journey, right? So somebody has just established a credit score for the first time uh, or is you know building their credit, like what are their next steps on that wealth building journey and how can our products and services play into their journey, right? And that's what makes Asusu an even more impactful and valuable company. And so carving out time for that, those kind of three buckets, and then also being a functioning human being, right? And having time to exercise, be a good husband, those sort of things. I need to carve that out intentionally on my calendar. Otherwise, if I just let it be driven by meetings, uh, I don't get that time. And so I'm, I'm trying to be more intentional and, and use my calendar as a tool for that. Um, as a personal anecdote, I actually blocked off every single vacation I'll take this year already, just to like put it on the calendar before something railroads it. Um, because something inevitably will. And so I, I think, you know, it's a work in progress and the, the calendar is a great tool for that. And the the biggest thing that I think you can do is is hire good people uh, that can really, that you feel confident in will handle it also. Yeah. Um, I want to follow up one of the things that you said. Um, do you have any advice for founders on that jump of 10 times in staff from, from 20 to 200? Any mindset differences, just any advice? 
Yeah. So, well, you know, one of the things that I think um, I got told a lot that I was very resistant to was uh, the people that get you here won't get you there. Right. And it's kind of this idea of like you have the zero to one team member and you have the one to 10 team member, and then the 10 to 100 team member. And I think I felt very resistant to it out of this like sense of loyalty, right? It's like you've been in the trenches with these people, you believe in them, they're going to grow. And I think like that's one thing that in, in hindsight, um, I've in some cases, many cases got wrong, right? Where um, it's not so much about being disloyal, it's about making sure that you're setting everyone up for success, both that person and the organization. And you know, oftentimes if you're going from managing a team of two people to a team of 10 people to a team of 50 people, that's years of career growth in three, six, 12 months. And some people can handle that. And we definitely have superstars that have really done a great job navigating that. And they're very quickly growing within the organization. And for many people, it's almost a disservice to them, right? Because it's unfair to expect someone to go through a decade of career growth in six months. And actually, they don't necessarily want that or feel excited or they just feel overwhelmed, stressed out and burnt out. But you feel like you need to kind of empower them, right? And it's like this weird sort of thing. And so almost I, I kind of landed somewhere in the middle where there are definitely people that you bring in early that are going to scale with you throughout the organization's history. But in all reality, not everyone can do that or wants to do that. And you need to be really thoughtful about creating opportunities for those people that were there in the early days to continue to grow, but not like doing both yourself them and the organization a disservice. And I think the sooner you have those frank conversations, the better, because what also is harder is if you set expectations and you're like, no, you're my person through like IPO or whatever. And then it's like, actually, you <laughs> that's not true anymore. We're going to hire someone above you versus just having a candid conversation being like, look, it's, a, it's we're kind of figuring these things out as we go. And we want to bet on you. We want to invest in you, but we also need to do what's right for a fiduciary stakeholders. You also need to do what's right for the organization. And we'll continue to have conversations around that in real time, right? You articulated that so well. I So I had a conversation four days ago, a friend, he just got offered $200 million for his company last summer. He's decided to keep it and grow it over the billion mark. And he is struggling with this so much because he keeps getting this advice, but then he feels like maybe it's disloyal. And I feel like you navigated that like so well on the like, honesty, honesty about the situation of like, is somebody going to make a decade of career growth in six months? And, and if they can, great. And if they can't, let's not pretend. Or I don't, I'm putting words in your mouth, but that's kind of what I heard. No, no, I think, I think that's a good way of putting it. Right. And it's like, you know, I think that transparency and honesty goes a long way and avoiding those mismanaged expectations. And you, you, you need to be thoughtful, right? You need to be intentional. And I think like sometimes people make rules one way or the other, right? It's like my core five people are going to be there forever, or it's like, we're never going to like give people advancement opportunities because we're just going to hire the next best thing for the stage. And the reality is it's somewhere in the middle and the context is king. And there's going to be people who can really grow and scale with you. And that is amazing because they have institutional knowledge. They have people's trust and respect, and they understand what was and what could be. And there's going to be people who won't, and that's okay. And they're still going to grow and have advancement. And they're going to be satisfied as long as you have candid, honest, constructive conversations and don't promise them something that that doesn't really happen. I want to be respectful of your time. I know we're closing it in on the end here. Um, what do you want to leave with? What do you want to leave people with today? Or what's what's a zero to billion question I didn't ask? Or actually just open floor, anything you want to talk about? Oh, man, uh, I don't I don't know where to where to quite take that. But I will say that, um, you know, there's a lot of people that are thinking about being entrepreneurs. Um, and so maybe what I can say is, is a couple of things around 
around the journey and and like why to consider and why not. And I'd say one, don't be an entrepreneur to be an entrepreneur. Be an entrepreneur because you really believe in something needs to exist and you have an idea that you really, really strongly believe in. And if that's the case, then find a way to make it happen because at the end of the day, you don't want to look back and have regrets about what if. And so I would say like the first check, if you're thinking about entrepreneurship as a career path, it's really like, do you have an idea or a concept or a company that you desperately believe needs to exist? And then find a way to make it happen. Um, I didn't grow up in a family where I had a safety net, but found a way to work in corporate America while kind of building it on the side, right? Figure out a way to make it happen so you never look back and have those regrets. And then to, I'd say like nothing worth doing is worth doing alone. Like the journey wouldn't be what it is without the people that I've been able to do it with, especially my co-founder, Wimimo, but then also everyone on the Asusu journey, our investors, our partners, our team members, my wife, all the people that kind of go uh, on the journey with you. And, and that's what makes it really special. Okay, I lied. I have one more question. So uh, we've had so many incredible entrepreneurs, either from India or first generation from India on the show. Um, so I think I'm going to like transcribe all of your guys' interviews and, and turn them into a book called like Amazing Indians or something. Okay. Uh, what kind of advantage do you feel like you have from your heritage? You know, it's, uh, that's a good question. So I will say like, there's, I'm assuming you haven't ever been to India, but you can, you can correct me if I'm wrong. But to survive in a country of 1.2 billion people um, that doesn't have the infrastructure of the US, it just, it takes a different kind of willpower. I mean, I had cousins growing up in India that would literally skip high school because they could study more hours at home without the transit. And they would study 17 hours a day to try to get an entrance exam into college. And so just the kind of like amount of tenacity and hustle that's required to kind of make it is just something that frankly, uh, you don't, you don't have in this country in the same way, right? There's just much more of that safety net, whether or not people realize it. And I think all struggle is relative, but I think for me, I was very fortunate to grow up with uh, a mom and dad who like literally killed themselves every day to make it happen. Right. I, my dad would wake up at 4am every single day. I grew up, right? And he'd be like, oh, my, my, my mother used to do the same thing to me. If I didn't want to get up at 4 a.m., she would just go and sit with me in bed until I got up and started doing things, right, to kind of progress it forward. And so, you know, I think I was fortunate to have a great, um, you know, set of role models in my parents, but also to understand, like, uh, you know, where they come from and watch them hustle and watch them struggle to make ends meet and seeing how different life was for my family in India versus some of the opportunities I was seeing my peers have in the States, right? And, you know, growing up, I, in some ways, I sort of resented that, right? Because it was like, oh, I don't fit in and I don't have the same money or opportunities. And like, why can't I have Lunchables? And my parents would be like, you know, why would we pay $7 for this rubbish food in, in a plastic box, right? And instead you can have some, you know, rice and lentils for a dollar and that's what you can eat, right? And so at the time, it just made me feel like different. But now looking back in hindsight, right, you, you really appreciate that, that like richness of experience and having that role model and seeing how hard my parents worked to try to give me a slice of the American dream. And, and so, you know, I think it goes a long way. And, and the way you have to hustle to survive in a country like India, and it's not just India, my co-founders from Nigeria, you see the same thing in a, in a country like Nigeria, 200 million people, right? It's, it's the kind of constraints that you see and, and, and witness and, and what kind of comes from that. Uh, struggle. Uh, well, it's interesting. You hear those stats about, you know, as an immigrant, you're four times more likely to become an, a millionaire in this country. <laughs> and uh, and I think I think it's reasons just like that. Listen, this has been so great. 
if people want to look at this for themselves or refer it on to somebody, what's the website? Where's the socials? Like where, where would you send people online? Yeah, absolutely. So people can very easily just Google Asusu. Our website should be the first thing that comes up, but it's uh, asusu.com. So E-S-U-S-U.com. We're on, you know, all the socials, but TikTok. Uh, so if you want to, I think we're most uh, active on LinkedIn and Instagram. And uh, you're always welcome to uh, reach out to me directly on, on LinkedIn or shoot me an email. And um, we'd love to continue um, having people follow along with Asusu's journey. Jess, thanks for having me on. It's really been a pleasure and I appreciate the thoughtful questions. Yeah, we got to have you back on next year for an update. Absolutely. Would love to. Okay, bye everyone.